Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. This is GPS, the global public square. Welcome to all of you in the United States and around the world. I'm Fareed Zakaria coming to you from New York. Today on the program, an exclusive interview with the Secretary of Treasury, Janet Yellen. Is inflation defeated? How likely is a recession? Will America's small banks survive? Are the sanctions against Russia really biting? I'll ask her all that and more. Also, highly classified documents from the Pentagon leaked on the internet. Military plans in the Ukraine war have been revealed. Allies like South Korea and Israel are dismayed. We will tell you what you need to know about this burgeoning scandal with David Sanger and Mark Hurtling. Thank you very much. Finally, America's immigration crisis from an angle rarely ever seen. CNN got exclusive access inside a harrowing trip from South America toward the United States on foot. What's startling is the sheer number of children. But first, here's my take. Last week, I argued against banning TikTok. And in talking to people about the platform, I came to see that the real concern most had was not about TikTok's Chinese ownership, but rather just how scarily addictive it and much of social media is. That is true and deeply worrying, and we should do something about it, and soon. TikTok is the dominant app in the U.S. today. It has about 150 million users here. The Washington Post's Drew Harwell nicely summarizes the data. In 2021, its website was visited more frequently than Google. Two-thirds of American teens use it, with one in six saying they use it almost constantly. It is also wiping the floor with the competition. Harwell quotes a Bernstein research report that found that between 2018 and 2021, the time Americans spent on the app surged by 67%, while ours on Facebook and YouTube grew by less than 10%. What is it that TikTok does that is so distinctive? No one quite knows. Philip Lorenz Spreen, a research scientist at the Max Planck Institute for Human Development in Berlin, told The Guardian, it's embarrassing that we know so little about TikTok and its effects. Partly this is because TikTok is relatively new and partly because its algorithm is highly sophisticated. Instead of an image or a post chosen by a friend, TikTok presents you with a stream of videos and gauges what you like to give you more of it, replacing the friction of deciding what to watch, the Bernstein researchers explain, with a sensory rush of bite-sized videos delivering endorphin hit after hit. Most psychologists would characterize it as also delivering dopamine, the chemical secreted in the brain 
when we find something pleasurable, such as food, shelter, or sex. Anything that connects us to others triggers this sense of pleasure because it's an evolutionary response. We survive better in groups than as individuals. Social media apps capitalize on this survival mechanism for their own profit. And TikTok provides this dopamine hit perhaps faster, better, and more pleasurably than any other app. The best way to understand how social media is affecting our brains is to go back to Psychology 101. B.F. Skinner, one of the foundational scholars in the field, demonstrated how operant conditioning works by using a simple system of continual rewards for pigeons, teaching them how to fly in circles, guide missiles, and even play ping pong. The simplest version to watch is a dog trainer who will give the pet a stream of small treats to reward him or her for following directions. Social media apps provide those small dopamine hits just as reliably. Jonathan Haidt has become famous as a critic of social media. A distinguished social psychologist, he teaches at NYU, Haidt argues that the rise of social media and its reward system is closely correlated with staggering declines in the mental health of teenagers. Around 2012, he argues, you begin to see all kinds of indications of declining mental health, from self-reported feelings to hospitalizations to attempted suicides. He says it has happened in the United States, Britain, and several other countries with widespread use of social media. The rise in anxiety, depression, and attempted suicides among teenage girls is particularly frightening. And these numbers are getting worse by the year. The timing makes sense when you consider that the early 2010s is when teens were trading in their flip phones for smartphones loaded with social media apps. And that 2009 is when Facebook introduced the like and Twitter introduced the retweet feature that mimicked the dog trainer's treats. So by 2012, the year Facebook bought Instagram and its user base exploded, a large number of teens were hooked. Hyde is working on a book on this topic, and on his substack, After Babel, he maintains an ongoing database of scholarly studies and commentary on these studies. I came away from it utterly convinced that he is right and that we need serious rules and laws surrounding this technology. He argues that the age at which social media companies can collect children's data without parental consent should be raised from 13 to 16. The initial discussions among lawmakers had chosen 16, he told me, but then social media company lobbyists were able to push it down to 13. There could be federal laws requiring more notifications when the app has been used for too long, automatic turnoffs at night, and more. For those worried about this kind of legislation, bear in mind that social media companies are largely protected from lawsuits by an extremely generous provision in the law, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. They can reasonably be asked in return to make their products safer for their consumers. The next technological leap is generative artificial intelligence. And once that is fully married to social media, those companies will have a superhuman capacity to create addiction machines of astonishing power that could hook us permanently, perhaps even rewire our brains with devastating consequences. We should act now while we have the time and the attention span.
Go to CNN.com slash Fareed for a link to my Washington Post column this week. And let's get started. This week, data showed that U.S. inflation had dropped to 5% on an annual basis, continuing a nine-month streak of declining inflation. But that number was still well above the 2% target. And this comes after the collapse of several regional banks, the fallout of which leads Fed economists to believe the economy will tip into a mild recession later this year. Where is this all headed? I sat down on Friday for an exclusive interview with Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. Madam Secretary, thank you for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. Let's talk about the American economy. Um, sure. The Federal Reserve has raised rates at some ways at a faster pace than almost you know, ever before. And yet, the, America remains at full employment. I mean, in general, the, the, the argument is the way you crush inflation uh, is you raise interest rates, make it harder for people to borrow, which then causes the economy to slow down, unemployment to rise. But unemployment really isn't rising. One of your predecessors, Larry Summers, says you're going to have to get unemployment up to really break the back of inflation. Do you think that you're, you, you're going to need to see substantially greater unemployment before inflation is conquered? I think we probably need some easing of stress in the labor market to get inflation down. But that doesn't mean that we need to see unemployment rise significantly. I, I believe a strong labor market and bringing down inflation are compatible goals. And I think we're seeing that play out right now. Um, first of all, inflation is too high. And President Biden and I feel um, this is a major, a primary problem that is afflicting American households. And it's something that we need to deal with. The Fed has the primary role here. Uh, we're trying to do other things that we can to be supportive. But it is a problem. But it has come down significantly. It's been declining for a number of months. And we continue to create jobs at a remarkable pace. Um, over 230,000 jobs last month. Um, so the labor market remains very strong, but we're still seeing with a slowdown in the economy, something we expected and is natural given that the economy is operating at full employment near its capacity. We're seeing some easing of stresses in the labor market. Initial claims for unemployment insurance, you know, they're not at level signaling um, distress, but they have risen somewhat. Job openings have declined somewhat. Wage growth has um, s still solid, but has moved down somewhat. So, and labor force participation has moved back up. It declined substantially um, when the pandemic uh, struck. But so you think you can achieve what people are calling this immaculate slowdown, where you slow down the economy enough to cut inflation, but not so much that it throws a lot of people out of work. That's but, right. I mean, mostly economists have often viewed this as a trade-off. I think that a, what people call a soft landing is possible. So 
I do think there's a path to bring down inflation while maintaining what um, I think all of us would regard as a strong labor market. Um, and the evidence that I'm seeing uh, suggests we are on that path. Now, are there risks? Of course, I don't, I don't want to downplay the possibility that there are risks here. But I do think that's possible. There are many factors that have been pushing inflation up that have nothing to do with the tight labor market. Russia's war on Ukraine raised food and energy prices. Um, the, the disruption from the pandemic um, caused supply bottlenecks that led to outright shortages, pushed up, for example, the prices of cars dramatically, new and used cars, because of shortages of semiconductors. We're seeing those supply chain bottlenecks that um, boosted inflation. They're beginning to resolve. We had big shifts in the way people live um, and low interest rates and housing prices rose a lot. Now housing prices have essentially settled down. Rental prices of new um, rental units moved up a lot, but they've now settled down and are falling. And that's an element of inflation that will continue to subside over time. What effect do you think the, the SVB bank and the sort of banking crisis, if one calls it that, has had on this program? Lloyd Blankfein, the former CEO of Goldman Sachs, said he thought it had the effect of, equivalent effect of the Federal Reserve raising rates, meaning that banks everywhere were now being careful, being cautious, not lending a lot of money, and that therefore it was also going to slow the economy down and slow inflation down. So I want to say we... Um, took rapid action to um, deal with the failure of two banks that had rather idiosyncratic uh, features that um, caused them to fail, um, wanting to make sure that Americans feel safe about their deposits and um, what we've seen in the aftermath of those actions is that outflows from the banking system have stabilized and things have been calm. We're, of course, monitoring things carefully, but I think the actions that we've taken have um, stemmed the systemic threat that um, existed, existed because of the failure of those banks. Um, banks are likely to become somewhat more cautious um, in this environment. We already saw some tightening of lending standards in the banking system um, prior to the, that episode, and um, there may be some more to come. And th that does tend to lead to somewhat greater restriction in credit that could be a substitute. Um, for further pricing, further interest rate hikes that the Fed needs to make. But I'm not seeing anything at this time that is dramatic enough or significant enough, in my view, to significantly change the outlook. So 
Uh, I think the outlook remains one for um, moderate growth and continued strong labor market with inflation coming down. Next on GPS, I'll be back with more of my interview with Secretary Yellen. We will talk about Russia sanctions and aid to Ukraine and whether there will need to be more of both. Finance ministers from around the world descended on Washington this week, as they do every spring for annual meetings of the World Bank and the IMF. They gather at a worrying time for the world economy. The IMF said this week that it expects global growth to be slower than last year, only 2.8%. One of the pressures weighing the world down, of course, is Russia's war with Ukraine. More now of my exclusive interview with Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen. You must, at these IMF meetings, be talking about uh, the Russia sanctions. And I wanted to ask you, uh, when you look at them, what is the piece of evidence you could point to that conclusively demonstrates that they are actually working and that Russia is being substantially deprived of revenues, that Putin is paying an economic price? So we've had two objectives from the outset. One is to deprive Russia of revenue, as you noted, and the second is to deny him access to the equipment that he needs um, to provision his military adequately to conduct this brutal war. Um, on the revenue side, um, our price caps that we've put in place on Russian oil um, have lowered the revenues that Putin is receiving by roughly 40% over the last year. Um, he expected to have budget surpluses. He now has very large budget deficits. In terms of equipment, we know that we've had great success in depriving him of the equipment that he needs to conduct this war. This is due to our export controls. And importantly, it's not just the United States acting alone. It's that we have a strong coalition partners who are working together to put in place sanctions, export controls, and working jointly on enforcement. Um, he lost over 9,000 pieces of heavy equipment on the battlefield, and we see the, Russian, the Russians struggling to replace this. So we see on the battlefield um, Russia is now forced to resort to Iran and North Korea um, to try to supply his military. And we continue to take steps to um, make sure that evasion of our sanctions isn't possible. But um, we, we think his military is really um, short of the equipment that they need uh, to wage war. Let me ask you about one of the costs or one of the prices of these sanctions. The way that the United States has used sanctions often in this case, in the case of the Iran uh, nuclear deal, is to use the power of the dollar as the, as the reserve currency of the world. But that weaponization of the dollar has produced a reaction. This week, President Lula in Brazil said, why are we all uh, being forced to use the dollar? Emmanuel Macron made reference to the dollar in that same way. The European Commission has talked about, after Trump pulled out of the Iran sanctions, talked about 
creating an alternative to SWIFT, to the American-dominated payment system. Uh, is there a danger that we will look back at all this, you know, these, these measures and say this was the moment that the dollar's hegemony and its, its status as a reserve currency began to falter? So there is a risk when we use financial sanctions that are linked to the role of dollar, the dollar that over time it could undermine the hegemony of the dollar, as you said. But um, this is an extremely important tool we try to use judiciously and in circumstances, especially when we have the support of our allies. It's not just the United States. It's um, a coalition of partners um, acting together uh, to impose these sanctions. So it is an, a very effective tool. Of course, it does create a desire on the part um, of China, of Russia, of Iran, um, to find an alternative, but uh, the dollar is used as a global currency for reasons that are, are not easy for other countries to um, find, find an alternative with the same properties. Um, the U.S. Treasury market is the deepest and most liquid and safest asset um, Dollars are widely used. It's, um, we have uh, very deep capital markets and rule of law that um, are essential in a currency that is going to be used globally for transactions. And we haven't seen any other country um, that has the um, basic infrastructure and institutional infrastructure uh, that would enable its currency to serve a role like this. Let me ask you one question about Ukraine, about uh, rebuilding Ukraine, resupplying it. It's going to take a lot of money. Yes. There are some who say th this money should be taken from Russia's frozen central bank reserves. Would you agree with that? I think Russia should pay for the damage that it has done to Ukraine. So that's a responsibility that I think um, the global community expects Russia to bear. This is something we're discussing with our partners, but, um, you know, there are legal constraints on um, what we can do. We have frozen Russian assets, um, and we're discussing with our partners what... Um, might lie in the future, but I think that's the right thing for to happen, that Russia should pay for the damages that it's caused. Janet Yellen, a pleasure to have you on the program. Thank you, Fred. Next on GPS, the leak of American classified documents. What effect will it have for U.S. relations around the world and on the battlefield in Ukraine? Trove of classified documents leaked to social media that came to light last week has revealed information that the U.S. and its allies would rather have kept secret. Most notably, that Ukraine's air defenses are weak and that Kyiv is in desperate need of munitions. The paper also says South Korea is worried that artillery shells it sells to America might end up on the Ukrainian battlefield, a breach of that country's policy not to supply ammunition to countries at war. 
They revealed that the U.S. may press Israel to provide weapons to Ukraine, which would be a change in Israeli policy as well. And there's undoubtedly information in the leaks that Russia can use against Ukraine. So what will the military fallout be and what effect is all this having on the United States diplomatic relations? Joining me now is retired U.S. Army General Mark Hurtling and David Sanger. General Hurtling is a national security and military analyst for CNN. And David is a White House and national security correspondent for The New York Times and also a CNN contributor. David, let me start with you and just set the, you know, the big picture what do these documents reveal? What, do you, what was the most striking things to you when you read it? Well, you know, as soon as I saw these leaks, Fareed, the first thing I was thinking was, you know, how does this compare with the famous leaks of the past? You know, the Pentagon Papers or WikiLeaks or the Snowden revelations of uh, just about 10 years ago. And the answer is that those were much bigger leaks, but these are much more current. Uh, they're very tactical. Some of the documents are 40 days old. They're from the end of February through, say, early March of this year. And so some of them are very damaging because they tell the Russians what it is that the United States is worried about immediately. So in the immediate tactical problems, there is, as you suggested at the beginning, one document that makes it pretty clear that Ukraine is running out of uh, ammunition for its air defenses and by a certain date in May may have none left. Well, that would be a big red flag uh, out there for the Russians to know that their air force, which they've kept pretty well grounded, would be able to go up without fear of being shot down. Uh, but there are other bigger issues that are there. The fact that we are listening in to uh, the uh, military officials around and some of the political officials around President Zelensky uh, in Ukraine tells you we don't trust entirely what the Ukrainians are sharing with us. The fact that we have, as, as you suggested, gotten in deep to the uh, South Korean National Security Council tells you that we want to know everything about their internal debate about whether or not they can ship uh, ammunition to Ukraine. They're one of the biggest producers of 155 millimeter uh, uh, rounds that Ukraine desperately needs for its artillery. Some of this is embarrassing to the U.S., uh, Fareed, uh, because uh, President Yoon of South Korea is coming to the United States in just two or three weeks for a state visit. Uh, you know, and he's going to have to get past the fact that the United States was listening in on his government. David, let me ask you about one reaction I had, which was compared to the, the previous ones, WikiLeaks and things like that. It strikes me there's nothing terribly embarrassing here in the sense that there's no hypocrisy. The U.S. is not caught doing something it was saying it, it wasn't doing. We know that they'd been trying to pressure the, the Israelis. Uh, even the South Korean issue, it's a little awkward, but it's clear the U.S. has been pressuring its allies to send uh, arms to Ukraine. So while... I'm sure that at a diplomatic level, it's going to be very tough on the ambassadors in those areas and the, you know, assistant secretaries. It doesn't seem to me there's a big negative diplomatic fallout in place here. I think there isn't a long lasting one. Uh, you know, it reminded me, Fareed, a little bit of WikiLeaks in that regard. WikiLeaks came out about uh, 13 years ago. We learned a lot 
about the vividness of it. We learned about the sharp elbows of diplomacy. We learned about the angst when they discovered that allies were lying to the United States. But by and large, as you say, there was no great revelation beyond an understanding of the the detail. And I think the longer term issue that it reveals is that while American officials love to say the Ukrainians are doing great, they're brave, they're out on the field, who, who could believe they could hold off the Russians so long? There is a deep concern, as General Milley has said publicly, that we are headed toward a stalemate here and that the United States does not see a path to victory for the Ukrainians. And that raises the big question, how does this war end then? Does it end in a negotiation in which, despite what President Zelensky has said, he may have to agree to at least accede to a, a, an armistice or some kind of ceasefire in which the Russians are holding on to big chunks of his territory? Well, you've teed it up perfectly for me, David, because I'm going to put all those questions to Mark Hurtling when we come back. And we are back with retired U.S. Army General Mark Hurtling and the New York Times' national security correspondent, David Sanger. Mark, you heard what, what David was saying about why this might be important, because it, there was a lot of battlefield intelligence. So as somebody who's been in the battlefield, tell us how important these kind of things are. Were the Ukrainians being helped enormously by U.S. intelligence? Does this uh, set them back because the Russians now know stuff? What's your reaction? I don't believe it sets them back at all, Fareed. Truthfully, the things that were on the documents are pretty well known by most military on both sides. Uh, The Ukrainian military knows where the Russian military are on a daily basis. I get an open source report showing exactly where all the battalion tactical groups are and their estimated strength. What this has done is shown the other side, it's shown the Russian, uh, something that we have been assessing from our joint staff based on the intelligence we've been receiving. I don't think there's a whole lot of big surprises there. In terms of the document you mentioned, or David mentioned with the air defense equipment, most military folks understand how much ammunition uh, Ukraine is going through. I don't think this is going to change any plans from the Ukrainian military. Uh, I've always tried to put myself in the place of what would I be doing if I were a Ukrainian general right now? I've got to do several things. First of all, an intelligence preparation of the Russian battlefield to find out what they're doing and where they're at and where I can attack. Number two, incorporating uh, all the bevy of new equipment he's received from both the U.S. and all of the NATO nations and how to coordinate that into a combined arms operation. How do I move from the defense to the offense, which is going to be exceedingly difficult for the Ukrainian military? And most importantly, how do I maintain my supply and logistics lines wherever I attack, wherever I conduct the offensive? Um, I I did disagree a little bit about uh, the comment regarding Ukrainians' capability to advance. Let's let's, let's talk about that for a second, because uh, it's not just these documents. We know that General Milley has felt that there is going to be a limit to the Ukrainian ability to recover territory, particularly once you get into the, the heart of the Donbass, where the Russians have been since 2014, and of course, Crimea. Do you think that that's true? I think this year, we will, in my view, we will not see a war win by Ukraine. 
But I certainly believe the, the, the capability of the Ukrainian forces with new equipment, if they get their supplies straight, will have, have them have the ability to uh, regain territory in both the Donbass and in the southeast. And that's more than I wouldn't put Crimea in that category. I would talk about Zaporizhia and uh, the other provinces in the southeast. Uh, so the intent is to regain territory on an offensive. And you think uh, it's not, you think they I could hold you could, win. and you think they could hold uh, for this year just fine. You don't think that the you know what you're envisioning is is the war going on all of this year, or the fighting going on and into next year easily. I, I I think so. Unless we see a complete failure in the Russian military, uh, the, the Russian military isn't going to calculate new operations based on any of these leaks. The reason they're not going to fly aircraft is. They can't. They have been failing to uh, exceed the front line of their own troops and getting aircraft out there. They've been bombing from long distances. Some of that is, in, is due to Ukrainian air defense artillery, but most of it is the fact that Russians' air force is just not capable. So if they completely fail, there could be much more advancing by the Ukrainian forces. But Ukraine going on the offense is much more difficult kind of proposition than what they've had in the first year of this conflict. David, final thought on, um, you know, the, the circumstances of this leak, as, as often with these other ones, lead me to wonder, why do so many people have access to so much classified material? And why is there so much classified material in the United States? The number of, class, of uh, top secret documents is truly staggering. It is. And so I think one of the long-term uh, consequences of this, Fareed, is going to be yet another rethink of our classification system. There have been complaints that too much is classified. And I think as you go through these documents, and I've been through uh, many of them, you realize that many of them didn't need to be. I mean, some of this comes from sensitive signals intelligence. A lot of it comes from things that people are reading in the New York Times, the Washington Post, or, or foreign newspapers each and every day, and they're all mixed um, together. Um, the second thing that you conclude from this is if you pull back dramatically from allowing this intelligence to flow, you run the risk of making again the error that led to 9-11. You'll recall that post 9-11, we said, why is all this intelligence siloed? Why did people uh, in the Defense Department, uh, at the FBI and others not know about the Saudi hijackers who were tra training in the U.S. And that led to a big opening of the intelligence world so that more people would see the data. And then you get an incident like this and the immediate instinct is to close down again. And we keep getting in this cycle. And the only way we're going to break out of it, Fareed, is if we begin to think hard about those things you really need to protect and those things that you really don't. Because if you protect everything, you're really protecting nothing. Thank you both. And Mark Hurtling points out most of his analysis is using open source data, which, is, which has been, as far as I can tell, as good as the government. So uh, on that note, Mark Hurtling, David Sanger, thank you. Next on GPS, the journey through one of the world's most dangerous migration routes has chronicled by a CNN reporter. It is totally fascinating stuff. You will not want to miss this. And now for the last look. Tonight at 8 p.m. Eastern and Pacific, CNN will launch a new show called 
The Whole Story with Anderson Cooper. In its first installment, correspondent Nick Peyton Walsh travels through the Darien Gap. It is one of the world's most dangerous migration routes used by people trying to get to the United States from South America. This part of the journey takes them from Colombia into Panama. The crisis there has gotten so dire that just this week, those two countries joined with the U.S. to launch a campaign cracking down on transit through this lawless jungle. In this clip, we come to understand the sheer volume of people willing to make this difficult trek. Nearly 90,000 people in the first three months of this year alone. The stories here are many, but there is only one goal, America. And the dream is just that, a reverie of hope, of conviction that they will be the ones to make it over danger, disease, dehydration, deportation. About this number, every day, every year, almost doubling. The Darien Gap is the only land corridor from South America where entry is easier to its north where it's not. There are no roads, only 66 miles of treacherous jungle from Colombia to Panama and onwards north, 3,000 miles to the US border. We walked the entire route of the Darien Gap over five days in February to document the suffering endured by people, milked for cash by cartels, unwanted by any country. What's startling is the sheer number of children on this trek as it begins on a route sometimes adults don't even survive. And CNN's chief international security correspondent, Nick Baden walsh joins me now. Nick, welcome. It's a, it's a fascinating documentary, and it, it seems to illustrate a point. A, a friend of mine always said that Donald Trump uh, uh, didn't understand which border the, the wall needed to be built on. It was not Mexico's northern border with the United States. It was Mexico's southern border with Central America, because that's where all the migrants are coming from. Um, are the countries of Central America trying to do something to stop this flow? Uh, is the U.S. asking them to? What's going on on that front? Yeah, I mean, there's U.S. pressure to try and stop this flow of migrants, but it's not really in the interests of any of the countries, frankly, before Mexico or even before the U.S. border with Mexico to really get in the way of this flow of people. The numbers are just staggering. They could easily, possibly, at the same rate, breach a million this year. And so any country that chooses along that route to say, all right, we're going to stop the migrants here, if indeed they can, is then going to be left with hundreds of thousands, likely, every year of migrants who just stay in their particular country, hoping perhaps for circumstances to change. Uh, you also show how this is a big business. I mean, these cartels are big and sophisticated. And you, are, you did this with the permission of a cartel, uh, embedded as it were. Why did the cartel let you do it? We don't know the full answer. My guess is possibly that uh, this is something they perhaps wanted to parade that they wanted people to see that this journey could be done, that to some degree the Colombian side of it where the cartels function was quite organized and fair to say it certainly was. There were porters taking people up towards the border. A kind of marketing strategy, Nick. Yeah, indeed, possibly, although obviously our role was to be sure we documented the suffering of people on that who are really 
being used by a cartel. The dreams that bring them to use that cartel, quote unquote, service, uh, uh, legitimate, wholesome needs to make a better life for their family. The cartel sees upon that, often sell them a rosy, inaccurate picture of how easy or fast this trek will be, help them on their way initially, take a lot of money off them and every opportunity they possibly can. Like a four or five dollar Gatorade up a mountain, yeah, it takes a lot of effort to get it out there, but that's a lot of money for a lot of these migrants. And then in Panama, it's onwards and off you go, Farid. Thanks, Nick. The whole story with Anderson Cooper premieres tonight, April 16th at 8 p.m. Eastern and Pacific. Make sure to catch this one. And thanks to all of you for being part of my program this week. I will see you next week. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.